You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. False flag cyber attacks mimic state actors, especially Chinese state actors. Chinese intelligence services are prospecting U.S. Navy contractors. Russia's fancy bear continues its worldwide phishing campaign. ISIS claims the career criminal responsible for the Strasbourg Christmas market killings as one of its soldiers. And a bogus bomb threat is being circulated by email. Call the technique Boomstortion. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, December 14th, 2018. Happy Friday, everybody. Thanks for joining us. China has come in for considerable criticism in recent weeks for its cyber operations, particularly those devoted to industrial espionage. It's displaced, at least for now, Russia as the prime adversary in American policymakers' public statements, as we've heard this week in testimony and comment before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. That China is an assertive, indeed aggressive, cyber power isn't really open to serious question, but criminals are increasingly flying Chinese false flags in attacks that have little or nothing to do with Beijing. Fifth Domain notes that this is an attractive ploy for criminals interested in deflecting attention from themselves. It's particularly easy to sail under false Chinese colors, not only because a lot of people are disposed now to believe that if it's hacking, it's probably China, but because Chinese intelligence services commonly make use of widely available tools that many criminal hackers can get their hands on. Attacks in Russia also suggest that criminals are trying to pass themselves off as intelligence services, the better to deflect official suspicion. Researchers at security firm Silance say that the recent attack on state-owned oil company Rosneft was framed to look like a nation-state attack. In reality, the hackers in that case were just criminals. That said, there are surely nation-state campaigns afoot. China is probing U.S. Navy contractors, the Wall Street Journal reports, looking for all manner of detail about naval technology. And Russia's fancy bear is still fishing widely in foreign governments' ponds. Non-state actors are reappearing during this holiday season, too, ISIS has for some time been relatively quiet in cyberspace, but its propaganda arm this week hailed the Strasbourg Christmas market murderer as one of its soldiers. The terrorist, killed by police, was apparently radicalized in prison. Whether ISIS played a role in inspiring him or is simply retrospectively and opportunistically claiming responsibility is unclear, but the terror group, as always, is attentive to the seasons in its propaganda. A fake bomb threat is being used to extort Bitcoin from businesses, mostly in the U.S. and Canada. Several businesses closed and evacuated their offices, but no bombs were found. 
The threats are being distributed with a demand for $20,000 in Bitcoin, payable by close of business. The subject line of the shakedown email is Hollywood-esque, think twice, things like that. The text goes on in the broken English that's become customary in spam land. We quote, There is the bomb in the building where your business is located. My recruited person constructed an explosive device under my direction. It has small dimensions and it is very hidden well. It is impossible to damage the supporting building structure by my bomb, but there will be many wounded people if it detonates. My man is controlling the situation around the building. If any unnatural behavior, panic, or emergency is noticed, he will power the device. I want to suggest you a deal. You send me 20000 in Bitcoin and the bomb will not detonate, but do not try to fool me. I warrant you that I have to call off my man solely after three confirmations in blockchain network. The poorly worded email threats bear the common usage and grammatical markers of spam, but it's just badly done. Connoisseurs of spam will notice that the missive lacks the appealing shimshara bim of the way the shadow brokers used to talk, and when we read stuff like this we miss the brokers, and we hope they got a better job somewhere, maybe with wealthy elite on some personal service contract. Whoever they are, they seem to be explosive buffs. Apart from their mention of TNT, the scammers in some of their communications specify the explosive as hexagen. Our Cyberwire Energetic Materials Desk tells us hexagen is a plasticized form of RDX, which pound for pound packs even more punch than TNT. Ars Technica points out reasonably that not even someone who writes like this can seriously expect to make money this way. It would take regular Joe Lunchbucket and Janie Sixpack, and those are people like you and me, my friend, well past close of business to figure out how to get a hold of some Bitcoin. Even a Bitcoin baron would likely think twice and call the police. Wired said this morning that the total sum that appeared to have been deposited in the five or so Bitcoin wallets amounted to less than two bucks. So if you follow ours in their speculation, it would seem that either the goons behind the keyboard haven't thought this one through, always a possibility in the underworld, or they're doing it for the lulls, or they're actually just interested in disruption. But unlike sextortion, which this threat is clearly modeled on, a bomb threat, even an implausible one, is harder to laugh off than a promise to show pictures of you looking at adult content, which of course none of you would do, but maybe your friends would. In all seriousness, most people have to take bomb threats seriously, and many of them have. The San Francisco Chronicle says... The local municipal railways bus lines, the Jewish Community Center, and the San Francisco Fire Credit Union were disrupted. ABC7 Chicago says that multiple hospitals and businesses in that city closed. And the Tampa Bay Times says there have been building closures and school lockdowns in Tampa. Do what you need to do to keep your people safe, but take comfort from the fact that major police departments across North America are calling this one a hoax. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, the NCIC, part of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, says this is a worldwide campaign. They recommend you do three things if you get this email. First, don't respond or try to contact the sender. Second, don't pay the ransom. And third, report the email to the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center or your local FBI office. A writer posting over at the Sands Institute suggests boomstortion or bombstortion as a name for this kind of caper. We're going to go with boomstortion.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She's a senior R&D manager for security at Accenture Labs. Malek, it's great to have you back. Um, we wanted to touch today on some vulnerabilities with smart speakers, uh, specifically uh, ways that they can misinterpret commands. What do we need to know today? I think a lot of people now, by now, have heard about adversarial examples against computer vision systems, um, particularly those that are being used by self-driving cars, where you can have a, um, you know, the vision system misinterpret a um, signage. If they see a stop sign, sometimes that can be misinterpreted as a um, speed limit sign by adding some perturbation to the image that they see. Uh, Well, a similar thing happens also with uh, smart speakers that are listening to voice commands. So you can issue a voice command to, uh, you know, your Alexa or or your Google Assistant or your Apple Siri. And there is a possibility for the attacker to uh, add noise uh, that can be misinterpreted by that system as a, a real command. Now, we've seen this before with something called the dolphin attack, where, uh, you know, that noise is added, it gets misinterpreted, there is some legitimate action that happens, uh, illegitimate action that happens that is taken by Alexa or Siri, etc. But in that case, the, the noise is heard 
by by the user. So they may be aware that something wrong is happening. What we're talking about here is that that noise can be designed or engineered in a way that it looks or it sounds very normal. You can embed it, let's say, within a song. So you'd be thinking that you're listening to some song, but, you know, that noise that was added, that perturbation that was added to the sound of the song, the sound bites of the song, can be misinterpreted by your digital assistant uh, as some command. This attack has been tested, and you know you can you can embed that sound in a YouTube song, for instance. You can publish that song, and uh, everybody who'd be listening to that song uh, would be vulnerable to uh, would be a victim uh, of this type of attack. And what what's the specific vulnerability here? What what sort of information uh, could they harvest by triggering the device? So uh, they can they can issue any any command that the uh, normal user would would issue. So they can, you know, read email, uh, have Google read email, have Google uh, restart a phone, uh, have it open, uh, have Echo open a front door, for instance. Um, and they can, you know, do some, say, Capital One credit card payment. Uh, these have been successful attacks that have been tested by by the researchers conducting this research at success rates that, you know, reach 90%. Wow. And is there any effective way to prevent this? I suspect, you know, if you want to be able to use the functionality of these devices, they need to be listening all the time. Yeah. Uh, So what can be done is, again, uh, looking back at these machine learning models that we develop uh, to interpret sound, to interpret sound, these acoustic models that are listening, that are interpreting that sound uh, and transforming it into text, um, those have to be hardened uh, and made robust against uh, these types of adversarial uh, examples. So it's basically securing the machine learning models that we're creating. They they will never be 100% secure, but we can do is, again, make them more make them more robust. There are techniques to do that by uh, training them through the adversarial examples up front, but that effort has to happen, uh, again, similar to what we're doing with vision systems. I think we we need to be thinking broadly across all machine learning models. Um, We need to be thinking that AI and machine learning is creating a new attack surface, And we need to be aware of that attack surface and start thinking about ways to reduce it uh, by rethinking about the way we train uh, and develop our machine learning models. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. My guest today is Laura Noreen. She's director of research at Obsidian Security a company building machine learning-based technologies to support enterprise security, where she focuses on data science, ethics, and human-centered design. Data science, as probably anyone who's ever done it knows, it's a very, very important part of a product build, but it has to follow engineering build. So a lot of what we work on is getting the engineering right. And then once we've kind of built our infrastructure and built our pipelines, which are designed for data science purposes, then we get to to start ingesting data and building models around that data. 
And, and so at what point does uh, the importance of ethics come into play? So in, in my opinion, uh, ethics comes in pretty much throughout. And it actually really is helpful if the data science team has been involved in building uh, some of the engineering infrastructure, because what we want to aim to do is to be able to ask questions about the broader impacts of the technology that we're building. And this would apply to any technology firm. Essentially, technologists are kind of world makers, world builders. They're shaping the way that people are able to inhabit the world. And of course, they're, they're companies, so they're aimed at a particular corporate purpose or set of purposes, but they typically aren't asked to think about broader social impacts because it's not in the day-to-day operations of how companies work. But we are starting to ask those questions very early. And cybersecurity is a particularly interesting area in which to do this because we're pitting something that's very important, security, uh, which is usually afforded at the collective level. You, You do security for an entire company or an entire country. That's what we're in the business of doing. And that is often perceived as being at odds with individual privacy. Hmm. That's not always the case, but in data science, that's kind of a, a crux that you run into a lot of a lot of times. And it's not just such as cybersecurity that runs into this problem. Marketing runs into this problem of, you know, how do you make predictions about who's likely to buy your product? That sometimes feels like it might be challenging ideas about privacy. Um, you're looking at signals in a large corpus of behaviors. Um, and in order to do that, you need to have, ind- or it's useful with data science to have individual insight, insight into what individuals are doing. And then that's where you run into questions about privacy, which is one of the ethical concerns that we have, although it's not the only one. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting to me because I, I think, uh, it, would it be correct to say that not all companies have people on board who are specializing in the on in the ethical side of things? But And uh, I suppose at Obsidian, that's something that uh, the powers that be have decided is a, a worthwhile investment. Yeah, it is actually kind of a truism. If you look across, you know, which companies are the most likely to have um, a chief ethics officer? I mean, now now that's, you know, anyone operating in Europe because they have to following GDPR. Mm. But if, if you look before that, um, companies like Microsoft had a chief ethics officer and really put that person right next to the CEO's office. It's older companies that have made a few mistakes and have run into some significant regulatory hurdles. Companies that are older have usually been the ones that have these ethics roles in them. And it's usually because their technology has run out ahead of themselves or the business decisions they're making have kind of gotten ahead of where regulations are and then the regulation catches up and it's costly. Those are the usually the companies where we see this. So it is particularly unusual to have a startup that's trying to build in ethics from the very beginning. Within the organization itself, is there a is there a natural, I suppose, almost healthy tension within of, you know, I can imagine the, the marketing folks want to achieve certain things, the technology folks want to achieve certain things. And, and so I could see there being push-pull between those, uh, even the legal department, between them and, and what you're tasked with doing. Yes. I mean, legal tends to be very interested in compliance, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, compliance you know, any, any law is, is always reactive to a situation, so it tends to lag a little bit behind what an ethicist might want to do. So legal isn't necessarily antagonistic to ethics. It's just, it's really, they're not the same. Mm. Um, legal is usually fairly supportive of what we're trying to do, though it may take some education to get on the same page about what each each goal is. But it is important to point out that legal compliance and ethical 
principles are are not the same. Ethics is always, or the, the beauty of the strength of ethics is that it's a set of principles that can be forward-looking, not just reactive. Now, what is your advice for companies that are either just starting up and, and want to get a handle on this or perhaps just want to, you know, it's something that they feel as though they've neglected. What's a way to approach this when someone's coming at it for the first time? I would recommend approaching it both from the top down and from the bottom up. So you want to have leadership really taking this seriously and and able to hear from the data scientists, from the engineers, when things might be getting a little creepy. So we have kind of created a reporting structure where if anyone says anyone on any of those teams sees something that's like, you know, as it turns out, you can actually learn a lot about uh, what's going on in a company by reading a file name. We had never thought of hashing file names because it seems sort of innocuous at the outset. But someone on our team said, hey, you can actually learn a lot from file names. Is there a way to still maintain some insight into what's being sent around without reading entire file names. How can we how can we handle that? Mm. And they have someone to take that concern to. If you don't want to appoint a person for that, then chances are that that idea that crosses an engineer or data science mind is just going to fade. You know, they'll think about it and then they'll get on to some other problem and it won't go anywhere. But if you have a feedback mechanism where there's a place to say, hey, there's there's a potential privacy issue here that nobody had really thought about. Can we think about it? Is there an easy fix for this? And for something like that, there might be a relatively easy fix. So you know, not everything is about saying no. It's about saying, well, how can we do this in a way that's more privacy protecting? It helps if you're the person that to whom you're reporting this stuff is has some strength in in the social sciences and kind of understands you know, their history and how these things have played out in the past and also has some technical chops so that they can suggest a fix rather than just suggesting we don't do X, Y, or Z. A stop sign isn't all that useful. You right. know, a redirection is much more useful. So that so that's the top down part. Have have a very intelligent person who's trained kind of across domains to understand what should happen next, to whom people can report without being, you know, punished or singled out in any way. It it does help to sort of have some some lightweight programming uh, like corporate programming that kind of touches people. So when you get when you hire junior people, assign them to mentors, someone who's within their kind of managerial organizational stack reporting structure, and someone who's who's not in that structure who can help them not only professionalize, you know, guide their careers, but also learn to articulate things they're seeing that might be, you know, that we might want to question. If you don't teach someone how to articulate that, it's unlikely that everyone's going to learn how to do that on their own. And it is usually the best in sort of one-on-one situations. So that's kind of the bottom up. Anyone who's who's aware of these things can start framing conversations about well, what's the broader social impact of what we are building? What's the broader social impact of what a company like Google, everyone uses Google, so it's a nice example. What's the broader social impact of some of the things that they do? Those are the conversations that are you know, that we can have our mentors have with some of the younger staffers to teach them that it's completely within their wheelhouse to ask those bigger questions, that they don't just need to stay in a track where they just build stuff and they never get to ask the big questions. That's Laura Noreen from Obsidian Security. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. 
It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.